today we're closing out in Romans chapter 12, um, verse 19 through 21. Been working through um, the book of Romans or the chapter um, 12 of Romans this whole month. I just want to pray for us as we get into this last section on the sovereignty of God. Lord, we thank you for your faithfulness. God, we thank you that you are in control and we have a God who is the beginning and the end, Lord, and that you know the very days um, that we will be on this earth, God, that you know the very hairs on our head. God, so I just pray that your word would uh, move powerfully this morning, Lord, that you would um, strengthen me, God, that I would um, be able to rightly divide your word, Father, and that um, your Holy Spirit would be able to change our hearts this morning, God, to make us more like Christ. And we ask you these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So, um, Romans 12, 19 through 21 says this. He says, Beloved, do not avenge yourselves, but rather give place to wrath. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Therefore, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him a drink. For in so doing, you will heap coals of fire on his head. Do not be overcome by evil but overcome evil with good. For me, this scripture was very powerful in my life. For those of you who've been with us the whole series, um, I was able to share at the beginning of the series just um, kind of my journey through anxiety and depression and some church hurt um, and some things that really got me to the point of hardly being able to function. And one of the last things, and I think most important things of my healing journey was really coming to grips with the sovereignty of God. Because when you run into things that are very painful in your life. And again, not just somebody calls you a bad name, but you know, something really deep happens in your life, whether that's something of abuse or whether it's a divorce in your family or a church split of people that you're very committed to all of a sudden are kind of like enemies. And it's really hard um, to process things like that. And when we get into those seasons, Something that I have found is that we are very limited. One thing we're limited with is our perspective. If you talk to four or five people who are all mad at each other and in an argument, and all four or five people try to be as honest as they can possibly be about what happened, how many different stories are you going to get? Probably four or five different stories. And it's not because people are lying. It's because we're not God. We don't get to see everyone's perspective and how they perceive things. And, and what we said, we thought we said um, something in a, in a very loving tone, but the way someone received it maybe was, was not in that way. There's something about God's perspective of being able to see everything that we can't and what's going on behind the scenes that is very important to remember. Not only is our, our, our point of view limited, but our emotional energy is limited. When you've been in intense conflict, you can only go through that process for so long until your body is shot mentally, spiritually, emotionally. Um, our stamina, our patience, our love, all of these things eventually in our own strength, we're gonna hit a limit where we can't go any further. But the good news about us as Christians, as we heal, we serve a God who is not limited. God is not limited in his power. He's not limited in his love. He's not limited in his perspective. He's not limited in his patience. But all power and glory and authority goes to God. But the tricky thing for us, even though we know that, we still have questions. Why is this happening? Or sometimes, what really even happened? I've been in situations like that where it seemed like it started out as a small issue and all of a sudden people are ready to fight each other. And I'm thinking, man, 
could we even, can we even pinpoint what we're actually angry about, what we're actually mad about? Sometimes we don't even know what's happening or maybe two people that we really care about are in conflict and we wanna know what's causing that conflict. Why are they, why are they fighting? Why are they after each other? But unfortunately for us, God doesn't always promise us those answers. But he does promise three things that are very key that we're going to look at today. As one, he promises that he's always in control, that God is in control. And I think a lot of times when we experience suffering and pain, our gut reaction is to either blame other people or even just blame the devil. I think he's a, he's a scapegoat a lot of times. Oh, you know, just that's the devil. That's the enemy. He's really after us. But for me and what I see in the Bible is if my house burns down or I lose somebody in my family or I get diagnosed with a terminal illness and you tell me, oh man, the enemy is just really after you, um, that doesn't bring me any comfort, really. It's like, oh man, well, sounds like the devil has a lot of authority and he has the right to plague me and hurt me. And what can I even do about that? Right, but everything the devil does, he can only go as far as God ultimately will allow him to go. We see that in the book of Job and we see that with Paul. He prays to God, Lord, that that God had sent a messenger of Satan, that that messenger of Satan was under God's control to actually plague Paul. And Paul asked God three times, God, would you take away this thorn in my flesh? And God's response is, Paul, my grace is sufficient in your weakness. And that leads us to our other two points we're going to talk about today is God's main focus for us in his sovereignty is not for us to have the happiest possible life or to make as many friends as we can, but God's ultimate purpose for every single person in this room is to make you like Jesus Christ. That's what he's most concerned about is making you like Christ. In addition to that, He's not just a drill sergeant, but he loves us. He's doing that not because he's just in control, but because he genuinely cares about us and that's our best interest. If you turn with me to Isaiah chapter 40, um, this was a a, a favorite scripture of mine um, when I was going through this season. And now they even have a um, worship song on YouTube that's like 15 minutes long. and I know Ken will maybe laugh at that, but uh, it goes on and on and on. And it's the, same, it's the same verse over and over. But it is kind of encouraging because he, he's, he's talking about what we're going to see here in this scripture. Isaiah chapter 40, verse 25, it says, To whom then will you liken me, or to whom shall I be equal, says the Holy One. Lift up your eyes on high and see who has created these things. Who brings out their hosts by number, he calls them all by name. By the greatness of his might and the strength of his power, not one is missing. Why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord and my just claim is passed over by God? The same question we ask. Why is my, why isn't the way hidden? Why isn't God answering my questions? Verse 28 says, have you not known and have you not heard? The everlasting God, the Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth, neither faints nor is he weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the weak and to those who have no might, he increases strength. Even the youth shall faint and be weary and the young men shall utterly fall. But those who wait on the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary and they shall walk and not faint. Really the first step in healing is waiting on God and not waiting on God so he answers your specific question or he fixes your specific problem but waiting on God that he would strengthen us because that's what he promises. He promises us that if we are weak and we are humbled and we are hurting, if we would just wait on him, 
Doesn't always say he'll change our circumstance, but he does promise us that he would strengthen us. And I think this is really important because in our Christian culture today, I hear a lot of um, positive talk. If you just say the right things and encourage each other enough, everything's gonna get better. And that's just not true. And the example I wanna give you is imagine if I was blind right now. I'm blind, I'm on, t- I'm in, on the stage and I need to get out of the church building. And you guys all just really encourage me and say, Luke, you know, you're awesome. And I know you're blind, but you can do this. If you just run and you run as fast as you can out there, God's gonna be with you and you're gonna make it. What's gonna happen to me if I take that advice? Oh man, thanks for making me feel so good. I can do this and I run. I'm gonna face plant right as soon as I hit that first stair because that's not true. It made me feel good. Made me feel like everyone was for me. But when push came to shove and I actually had to do it, there's no truth in it. There's no substance in it. See, the sovereignty of God brings substance. Not that everything's gonna be great and fine and good in our lives, but that we have a God who loves us, who's in control and ultimately has our best interest in mind. If you turn to Ephesians chapter one, we're gonna see this concept at work. Ephesians chapter one, um, verse 11. He says, in him also we have obtained an inheritance being predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. So how many things does God work according to the counsel of his will? All of them. And it's hard for us to understand how God can use sin and hardships and trials, but that's something he promises. There's something about this earth and the redemption promised through Jesus Christ that God uses sin and he uses the devil. He doesn't cause those things, but he's using all of these things ultimately for his glory and for his purpose. Second scripture that that reaffirms this is in Romans um, chapter eight, another kind of famous scripture here. Romans 8, 28 and 29. And he says, and we know that all things work together for good to those who love God and to those who are called according to, the, according to his purpose. For whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. Two things that are really important here. It says that all things work for good to those who love God, but how do we define good? I think a great way um, or a great example of this is the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. That's the best thing that ever happened to you and me was the crucifixion of Christ and his resurrection. But it was also a horrible thing. No one would call that good, that God became a man and loved us and cherished us and in return we crucified him. It's not a good thing, but yet it is a good thing because it's accomplishing God's ultimate purpose. See, as we submit to the sovereignty of God, our definition of good starts to change because it's not about what we get and how we feel, but it's ultimately about God's purpose in laying down our life for others. But the second thing he says is that he's done this so that we would be conformed to the image of his son. And so three things you can count on, no matter how hard your current situation is, is one, that God's in control. Satan does not have power over your life, even though it may feel like that sometimes. God's in control. Number two, that God loves you. But number three, if you would trust him, he will make you more like Jesus Christ. And the question we have to ask ourselves, is that what we want most in life? 
Do we want, the thing that we want most in life, is it to be like Christ? Or is it to do other things? Because if we're honest, when we're really suffering, it would be nice just to go on a cruise or to take a vacation or to go hang out with some friends that we really like. But a lot of times God is asking us to pick up our cross, deny ourselves, to come after Christ and ultimately to become more like him. If you are going through a season of hurt and and needing healing, um, we've talked about some of the services and things that we provide at the church, but I encourage you to read the book of Ecclesiastes. This was um, really encouraging for me. Um, I had never really liked the book of Ecclesiastes too much until I was really depressed and I found some comfort and, and wisdom in the book of Ecclesiastes. And there's a, a teacher by the name of Tommy Nelson um, out of Denton Bible Church. He has a whole um, series of it on YouTube that's for free. Um, I really encourage you to check that out on your own time. But if you would turn with me to Ecclesiastes chapter three, this is written by Solomon, um, the wisest man to ever live outside of Jesus Christ. And this is what he writes. In Ecclesiastes chapter three, we'll start in verse one. He says, to everything there is a season, a time for every purpose under heaven, a time to be born, a time to die, a time to plant and a time to pluck what is planted, a time to kill and a time to heal, a time to break down, a time to build up, a time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn and a time to dance, a time to cast away stones and a time to gather stones, a time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing a time to gain and a time to lose, a time to keep and a time to throw away, a time to tear and a time to sow, a time to keep silence and a time to speak, a time to love and a time to hate, a time of war and a time of peace. So who gets to choose what time it is, right? God does. He gets to choose. We would love if it was always a time to plant and a time to heal and a time to build up and a time to laugh. We can pick out all the good ones, right? But there is a time for everything in order for God to um, accomplish his purpose. But see, one of the biggest things and what we've been focusing on this part of Romans is when we've been harmed, when we've been wronged by someone, it's hard to realize there's a time for that. There's a time where each one of us is going to be extremely disappointed, especially when we trust in people. And, And for me in my life, some of my biggest hurts has come from within the church. And something that I learned is that we love one another and we think the best of one another and we serve one another, but no one person um, will ever be able to withhold the standard that you want for them. If you, whoever you really look up to, whoever that person is, it's just a matter of time till they're gonna let you down. I'm not trying to discourage you, but it's just true. We're men and that's why Jesus Christ came to be the savior. There's no one man who can do that. And we, when we think someone's gonna be that person, um, we're gonna find out quickly that they're not gonna be able to withhold that standard. But when someone we've really trusted and someone we really loved has turned out not to be the person we thought they were or has betrayed us or has hurt us, there's something in us that just wants them to be exposed, right? Well, man, you know, everybody loves this person, they like this person, but if they really knew, you know, what they said to me and if they really, if everyone really knew what they did to me, it's like, we just want to broadcast that, you know, go on Facebook Live or put it on YouTube that everyone would know what's going on. But something that we have to come to grips with is that we're not the judge. It's not our job to expose everyone. 
It is our job to hold each other accountable and to speak into each other's lives, but that's much different than judgment. It's much different than exposing people for selfish gain. And in 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 24 and 25, God explains this to us. He says, some men's sins are clearly evident, preceding them to judgment, but those of some men follow later. So he's saying some men's sins are really clear that if I have um, tracks up and down my arms from using drugs, it's probably pretty clear that, hey, I'm not living a godly life right now. If I commit adultery and I move to another state and try to start a new family, it's pretty clear I'm not living in a godly way. There's some sins that are very evident. But there's other sins that are really sneaky. There's other sins like pride, especially spiritual pride, things like coveting things, things like bitterness that we can hide from everyone and we can even deceive ourselves that those things are going on in our heart. But ultimately there's gonna come a day where we're all gonna stand before God and give an account for what we've done, believer and unbeliever alike. But he says in verse 25, likewise, the good works of some are clearly evident and those that are otherwise cannot be hidden. In the same way, there's some things like giving a sermon or going on a mission trip that everyone sees and and thinks, oh man, look how godly that person is. But there's other things that no one's ever gonna see. That person who hurt you and didn't care and tried to kind of rub it in into your life, but instead you loved them and you prayed for them and you served them and nobody ever saw it. There's gonna come a day where you'll stand before Jesus Christ and receive an eternal reward for that. It won't be an earthly reward of people clapping their hands, but the God of the universe will say, well done, and give you reward for these things that are done in secret. See, it's not, if we're trying to expose everything and tell everybody who's good and who's bad, we'll drive ourselves absolutely crazy. And the truth is we're wrong half the time. Again, because our perspective is limited. There's one judge and there's one lawgiver and that is Christ. But I want you to think about this, that we have never received the just reward and penalty um, for our sin that when Adam and Eve sinned in the garden, it would have been right for God to condemn them and to sentence them to hell after their first sin. He didn't owe them. He doesn't owe us forgiveness. I think that sometimes we get an entitlement as Christians of, well, God just, he owes us to forgive us and he doesn't. That God condemned Satan when he fell from heaven for his sin of pride and God didn't give him another chance. There wasn't an opportunity for Satan and the demons to repent, but there is an opportunity for men, his, the, the people made in his own image to repent and to turn from their sin. And so throughout the whole Old Testament, we may think that God was harsh, but really the whole Old Testament is still a sign of grace. God is sending prophets. He's giving us the word of God. He's um, showing us his law. He's doing a lot of things so that we could know who he was. But then God sends the ultimate gift, right? That God himself becomes flesh, becomes a man. And what did Jesus say? He says um, in John chapter 12, he says, I didn't come to judge the world. I didn't come to condemn the world, but I came that the world might be saved. See, Jesus, when he came, he wasn't here to condemn people. And he was here to really encourage us and to warn us that there is a day where ultimate judgment is coming. There is a day where the grudges and the bitterness that we've withheld in our, in our, in our hearts, we're going to have to stand before God and that's going to be revealed, even if we've hid it from everyone else. If you turn with me to Acts chapter 17, Paul preaches about this to some guys in Athens. If you turn to Acts 17, um, verse 30. 
He says, truly these times of ignorance God overlooked, but now commands all men everywhere to repent because he has appointed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by the man whom he has ordained. He has given assurance to this all by raising him from the dead. See, God's really, he's been, over, in, in a sense, he's been overlooking sin. He's been giving time and looking over the ignorance that we have of not realizing how short we really fall of the glory of God. But there's a day, a specific day that, that God has appointed that the man, Jesus Christ, according to the perfect standard that he lived, will judge the living and the dead. And everyone, again, believer and non-believer alike, will give account for what we've done. And Jesus in his earthly ministry was so gracious and so faithful and he continues to pray for us and long for us to change. But sometimes, you know, there's a old song or prayer written by um, John Wesley that goes, um, gentle Jesus, meek and mild, looks upon a little child, talking about just the, really the niceness of Jesus. And that's true. Jesus is gentle, he's loving. But sometimes we never get past the gentleness of Jesus and realize that he's a holy God with a standard that will one day demand of everyone to meet that standard. And either we meet that standard by grace through faith or that we will fall short of it. I want to read two scriptures that, that really display what does this judgment of God really look like. And I believe this is so key in humbling ourselves, humbling our heart. When we want people to get what they deserve, we don't even know what we're saying. We don't really even know what we're asking for because when we read these scriptures, this isn't something I want anyone to deserve. I don't want anyone to receive the, the, the true righteous judgment of God on their life. But I, I would hope, I would pray that, that all men would, would come to repentance. So if you turn with me to Isaiah, I know we're jumping around here, but hang with me because I think this will be powerful scripture for us is Isaiah chapter 63 is a prophecy of Jesus Christ that's revealed later on in Revelation um, chapter 19 that we'll read. And before I read this, he uses the imagery of a wine press and a wine press is something that um, you know, they would stomp on grapes until they would become juice and that juice would pour out and they would eventually make the wine um, out of the grapes. And he says this in verse two, why is your apparel red, talking to Jesus, and your garments like those, like one who treads in the wine press? Because they would get very, um, a lot of grape juice on them from doing this. He says, I have trodden the wine press alone and from the peoples no one was with me. For I have trodden them down in my anger. I have trampled them in my fury. Their blood is sprinkled upon my garments and I have stained my robes for the day of vengeance is in my heart and the year of my redeemed has come. I looked, but there was no one to help and I wondered, but there was no one to uphold. Therefore, my own arm brought salvation for me and my own fury it sustained me. I have trodden down the peoples in my anger and made them drunk in my fury and brought down their strength to the earth. If you flip to your last book of your Bible in Revelation 19, we see this picture displayed of Christ covered in the blood of his enemies and returning to redeem the church. He says in verse 11, I'll give you a second to turn there if you're flipping. Verse 11, he says, Now I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. 
and he who sat on him was called faithful and in true and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes were like a flame of fire and on his head were many crowns. He had a name written that no one knew except himself. He was clothed with a robe dipped in blood and his name is called the word of God. The armies in heaven clothed in fine linen, white, white and clean, followed him on white horses. Now out of his mouth goes a sharp sword that with it he should strike the nations. And he himself will rule them with a rod of iron. He himself treads the winepress of the fierceness and the wrath of the almighty God. He has on his robe and on his thigh a name written, King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. So there's gonna come a time where each one of us will stand before the resurrected, glorified Jesus Christ with eyes like fire and a tongue like a sword and his robes dipped in the blood of his enemies. And we'll have to give an account for our life. We'll have to give an account for whether we have held grudges, whether we've lacked forgiveness, whether we have lived for ourselves, or we've truly lived for him. And in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul talks about God has given us a ministry of reconciliation. And he says, actually, because I know the terror of the Lord, I know what judgment's really like, I'm compelled to be ready to forgive other people. Because the truth is, is, is if Jesus treated me like I've treated my enemies, um, I would be condemned. There would be no salvation for me, but I would be eternally condemned to hell because of the way I've treated my enemies. Because Romans chapter five says that Jesus died for us, not when we were his friends, but when we were his enemies. So the question is, if Jesus Christ forgave you when you were his enemy, how can you not forgive those who have been your enemies? Because you have fallen way, way further from God's standard than people have fallen from your standard. It's not even close. But see, it's the love of God and it's the justice of God that comes together that Jesus Christ on the cross, this terrifying picture of, of God's wrath that we see in the scripture, it fell on Christ instead of falling on you. That Jesus took every ounce of the wrath of God for your sins so that you could be free, so that you could experience the love of Jesus Christ. And one thing that he's asking us to do with that is now serve our enemies, be quick to forgive, bless those who persecute you. And he says it'll be like um, pouring coals of fire on their heads. That kind of is a, a strange um, phrase. But what he's talking about is twofold. One, the ancient Egyptians would put a bowl um, of fiery coals on their head. Um, which was kind of intense. And they would walk around their village as a sign of a humiliation if, or contrition of if they had sinned or if they had offended the community, they were showing publicly that they were ashamed and that they wanted to change. And so in one way, when we serve other people, we forgive other people, we can literally lead them to repentance, to, to, to contrition, to being right with God and even come to salvation. But uh, this, this phrase comes from the book of Proverbs, but um, in another place in Proverbs, he talks about this, these fiery coals being a sign of judgment. Of you've been forgiven, you've been offered grace, you've been offered reconciliation, but instead you've said no and you've continued in your own pride anyways. So I wanna close with two stories of what does this practically look like to live with the sovereignty of God in mind and be impacted by not just his love, but also with his justice and be urgent, not putting off reconciliation, but to be urgent about reconciling with others. There's a missionary named Jackie Pollinger and she was 20 years old um, when she left England and she went to Hong Kong, didn't have a whole lot of training. She was actually a music teacher. And when she got to Hong Kong, there was a 
place called the Walled City. And we're sparing you guys too much background. Um, it wasn't governed by anyone. It was through different wards and this, this patch of land was un, ungoverned by any government. And um, it was literally walled and it was about six and a half acres um, big and it had about 35 to 50,000 people. And they never really knew the, the census because it was ultimately ran by the triads, which was the biggest um, gang in the Hong Kong and really in, in all of China. And these triads ran this little walled city um, through prostitution, through opium, and just through violence of, of murder. And so Jackie Pullinger shows up at 20 and barely knows any English and um, just starts to love these people. And over time, she starts leading these opium addicts um, to Christ and, and the prostitutes to Christ. And over time, she opens up, after about four or five years, opens up a youth club. And through this youth club, a lot of the young kids who were getting pulled into prostitution and gangs um, started to get saved. And she had gotten some donations, you know, some ping pong tables and different things and, um, to, to play with the kids. But ultimately, her life was hard. I mean, full of, I mean, talk about intensity constantly. She's at prison trying to bail people out, constantly forgiving people, constantly pouring out her life to those that she was serving. Well, one day, one of the gangster kids that she was working with um, felt like his life was getting worse because of um, following Christ. So what he did is he got a couple of his gangster buddies and um, they went and they wrecked Jackie Pullinger's youth club. They broke in and they took buckets of um, feces of urine and, and um, poop and they threw it all over um, the room and they broke the windows and they broke the doors. And I mean, it took forever to get this um, youth center fixed up enough to even house people and overnight it's destroyed and um, the kids leave and she doesn't know who's done it. So she gets there the next day and she's in tears and she's thinking, man, I should just go back to England. I mean, I've laid down my life for six or seven years, come close to death multiple, multiple times. And this is the way these kids repay me is they destroy everything that I've tried to do for, for them. But what held Jackie together was the sovereignty of God, that she believed all things work for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purpose. She said, God, I don't know as she's crying, didn't make her feel good, <laughs> but I don't know what you're doing, but I'm gonna trust that you're doing something in the midst of this trial. Well, the main gang leader of the entire area had been watching Jackie from afar and he respected her for what she was doing. And he was mad at these two kids for what they'd done because they were, they were still in his gang. And he told them, he said, you know, you need to go back and you need to apologize to Jackie. And they're like, no way, there's no, you don't know what we did this place. There's no way we're going to go back. And he said to them, you go, I, I, Jackie loves you guys in the same way that I do. That might sound funny to us, but in this gang culture, there was a lot of loyalty. I mean, they would literally lay down their life for one another. They'd go to war for one another. And they would die for one another. And he says, I know that she would lay down her life for you. And you guys can't treat her like this. You need to go back and you need to apologize to Jackie. And they said, no way. There's no way she is going to take us back into her youth club. And this gang leader says, she has to take you back. She has to forgive you because she's a Christian. And those words, man, sunk in as Jackie found out later why he said that. And the reason she knows why he said that is because not only did these two kids get saved, 
Um, but this gang leader ended up being saved as well. And the, the walled city that was once a drug-infested, crime-infested place actually doesn't exist anymore, that eventually it was bulldozed over. And a lot of that had to do with Jackie's 30 or 40, 40 years of mission work there, leading these kids to Christ. And eventually the gangs weren't in control because their own gang leaders um, were coming to youth group um, on Sunday mornings. See, Jackie chose to believe that God was in control that ultimately God would bring justice. It wasn't up to her. But she also knew that God was making her like Jesus Christ and that was enough. And through that, she was able to impact an entire city. The last story I'll share, which is more on the negative side of things, is there was a friend of mine who was a pastor for a long time and, and he'd had a, hard, he'd had a lot, hard season of ministering and there had been a lot of church hurt that he'd experienced. And during this time, he had um, had a heart attack and there was one of the guys that he had invested into a a lot of his life and they were at odds um, and they hadn't spoken for a while. And while he was in the hospital, this young pastor texted him and said, you know, I know we've had a lot of our differences, but I just want to let you know I'm praying for you and I hope that that you recover well. When I was talking to the pastor who was in the hospital, he said, you'll never guess who texted me. It's like, well, who? So he tells me the guy's name and he goes, I can't believe he would pray for me. Doesn't he know I'm the reason or he's the reason I'm in the hospital, all the pain and the suffering and the disappointment he caused me and and I'm the reason he's here. He shouldn't be praying for me. When I look at those two different situations, you know, there was an opportunity for Jack. He was hurt a lot worse to give up and to get rid of those kids. But instead, through her testimony, they came to Christ. And this other opportunity, reconciliation was missed and coals of fire we're, we're, we're unfortunately um, on this guy's head in, in, a, in a bad way, that it hardened his heart even further to reconcile with those who hurt him. So we have two options. We have two choices. We can be like Jackie and we can go through life in, in suffering and trials and rely on the, on the sovereignty of God and the love of Jesus Christ that he's displayed to us and do that which is in, to others, which is impossible outside the power of the Holy Spirit. Or we can choose to be bitter and one day we'll stand before the Lord and we'll have to give account that he was willing to die for us, but we weren't willing to forgive other people. So I want to invite Pastor John up and um, he's going to give us a a closing and lead us into um, a time of communion. Well, I really believe this message on the sovereignty of God is the crux of this series on healing. Um, If we will truly believe that God is in charge and really trust him with the things that happen to us in this life, then we will find healing. It really is the only path. Um, I know as I've counseled uh, people over the last weeks and, and even in my own life, it comes down to this. Things happen to us, oftentimes at the hands of others. And those things hurt. They do damage to us. The question is, can you, will you believe that God is sovereignly at work in the middle of those circumstances? Sometimes people act out of incompetence and it hurts us. Sometimes they act willfully to try to do damage. But the truth is the scriptures teach us that God is in charge, he's in control and he is sovereignly guiding your life and that he can and will work good even out of those things. So I wanna call you 
to trust God, to really believe that he is in charge of your life and that he's guiding you. And that even the things that hurt, oftentimes those things become the catalyst for the greatest growth in our lives, the greatest moves towards him. He's at work, even in those tough situations. As we end our service, I wanna take the Lord's Supper together. I wanna read a passage out of 1 Corinthians chapter 11. The Apostle Paul talking to the church in Corinth about some bad behaviors that they had been engaging in related to the Lord's Supper. They weren't taking it out of reverence for Jesus. They'd gotten off track. And so he reminds them of what it's all about. 1 Corinthians eleven twenty three. he says this, for I pass on to you what I received from the Lord himself. On the night when he was betrayed, the Lord Jesus took some bread. He gave thanks to God for it. Then he broke it into pieces and said, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this to remember me. In the same way, he took the cup of wine after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant between God and his people, an agreement confirmed with my blood. Do this to remember me as often as you drink it. For every time you eat this bread and drink this cup, you are announcing the Lord's death until he comes again. So anyone who eats this bread or drinks this cup of the Lord unworthily is guilty of sinning against the body and the blood of the Lord. That is why you should examine yourself before eating the bread and drinking the cup. For if you eat the bread or drink the cup without honoring the body of Christ, you are eating and drinking God's judgment upon yourself. So I want to encourage you as we take communion today to examine your heart, allow the Holy Spirit to speak into you, expose anything you need to confess and do it. And then let's take communion together um, out of celebration, appreciation, and act of worship for what Jesus has done for us. We have uh, tables up here at the front and one at the back. And so in a moment, I'll pray and um, have you stand up and go to one of the stations and grab a cup and a bit of bread. And then as a family or as uh, those you're with, or if you're by yourself, just pray and thank God for what he's done for you and take communion and let's celebrate with thankful hearts what Jesus has done for us. Let me pray. God, we are so thankful and grateful. We struggle to be obedient, to do the things that you call us to do. But out of your gracious mercy and love, you continue to forgive and you continue to restore us. God, we want to experience healing. We don't want to walk with the wounds and the pain that we have as we go through life. We want to be set free from those, from that baggage and that destructive attitudes and, and issues that hang on to us. And so God, I pray today as we encounter you, as we examine our lives and allow you to move in us and through us, show us things that we need to move away from or things we need to move towards to live in obedience to you and to walk in health and wholeness and healing. Thank you, Jesus, for the sacrifice you made for your body being broken, your blood being shed so that we could know you. And today as we take Lord's Supper, as we, as we celebrate what you've done, we are truly thankful. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.